Hi, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast, and I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to pull off how we perfect parenthood, and often we may not feel good enough. I'm here to help you face these challenges head on. I'm here today with Bonnie Rockman. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Wendy Sue. <laughs> Bonnie writes about parenting and health for publications like big ones, including the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and she's a former parenting columnist for Time.com. And that's how I first got to know Bonnie, because she'd interview me for media stuff. And then Bonnie was nice enough to write the foreword for my my first book, um, Mama Doc Medicine. But Bonnie's here today because she just published her first book called The Gene Machine, how genetic technologies are changing the way we have kids and the kids we have that's being published at the end of February 2017. Bonnie, thanks for joining. I'm so happy to be here with you. So Bonnie is going to help us kind of put a stamp in time on what we know right now, kind of philosophically, almost spiritually, what we know and how we feel in some ways about genetic testing before conceiving and having a baby, after conceiving and thinking during a pregnancy on how you protect your pregnancy and think about your baby. And she's going to help kind of give us the deep dive in what she learned writing this book. So a couple of things, you know, just I was saying just before we came in, I just went on Baby Center and I did a search for prenatal testing. I wanted to see, you know, what are moms finding or dads finding when they go online? And, you know, it's it's pretty run of the mill what you find online in those kind of sites, which is ultimately, well, the official test that can be offered based on timing that usually includes um, some genetic counseling before even conceiving, although the Baby Center link didn't talk about that. It talks about the peripheral blood screening and the combination of what's called the nuchal translucency, which is an ultrasound that's done about 11 to 13 weeks where they really just look at the thickness of the back of your baby's neck to determine if it's extra thick. And sometimes if it's extra thick in combination when looking at laboratory studies, it, it, talks, it may mean there's increased risk for abnormalities. They talk about the new, which for me having eight and 10-year-old kids didn't exist when I was pregnant, but the new non-invasive prenatal tests and blood draws that can be done around 10 weeks and when you're looking at cells for kind of fetal DNA screening. And then they talk about carrier screening, which Bonnie knows lots about, where you can screen um, with blood testing, looking for almost 100 different underlying genetic tests. And then they even talk about the second trimester test that moms can get, the so-called quad screen that's done around 16 to 18 weeks, and then even more invasive testing, something called amniocentesis. And there's also cryonic villus sampling, which is another invasive test that's done even earlier. So when, when a mom goes online and sees all that, it sounds probably like it just did, which is like gobbledygook. Yes. It makes you want to just curl up and take a nap. Yeah. So talk about what you learned in writing Gene Machine and, and kind of what your personal story is that had you get curious and, and what you know now that you want folks to know. Sure. So I'm going to start with what really interested me in um, writing about this. And I'm going to go back to um, when I was pregnant back in 2001. Mm. So, a long time ago. Bonnie <laughs> is a mom to three. I yes. forgot to say that yes. in your intro, but yeah. very relevant <laughs> to her writing. So I um, I went to my doctor. I was living in North Carolina at the time, and I asked him what sorts of tests I needed um, before trying to get pregnant. And I am an Ashkenazi Jew, so that means a Jew of Eastern European heritage. And he said, "Oh, you just need Tay-Sachs screening. That's all. Goodbye." <laughs> and 
I, because I'm the super anal mom slash journalist who researches everything, I said, well, actually, I did a little research. And in New York City, um, at some of the various um, centers for genetic testing there, they recommend, at the time, I think it was like nine diseases. And he looked at me and said, essentially, that's overkill. You don't need to be doing that. So it was clear he was not going to... um, he was not going to sanction what I wanted. So yeah, I went which elsewhere. gets right away. I, sorry to interrupt you, but it gets right away at that. He's got a certain way of looking at the yes. world, right? Who he presents himself to the world and to medicine is in one philosophy. And a patient or family or mom or yeah. dad-to-be may present themselves to the world in in their curiosities right. and in their understanding of risks really differently. Yes. So that, what I, I guess one of the things I want to interrupt in is you bring up, I think, such a relevant point for all parents that the match your philosophic match with your provider may not be that. It may not be a great match sometimes. And it's okay when you feel that dissonance to go out and find a better match to help even understand and explain. That is exactly actually what I did. Yeah, I bet you did. (laughs) That is what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, unfortunately, this pregnancy ended in miscarriage. And this particular doctor was... um, such a jerk for mm. lack of yeah. <laughs> lack yeah. of a better word about the miscarriage about the miscarriage mm. i just felt there was no compassion there was not even i'm sorry for your loss mm. um, i realized miscarriage is incredibly common but to me it was my first experience with a pregnancy and it wasn't common for me yeah so um, i just felt after um, he wasn't supportive of the genetic screening that i i wanted and how he dealt with the miscarriage i went um, I went to a genetic counselor um, at Duke University. I told her my whole story. She started laughing, not in a cruel way, but in a very knowing way. Uh And she said, of course you're finding it hard to get genetic testing. No No one sends people to genetic counselors, and it's just not part of the kind of preconception philosophy. Space. It's uh-huh. not part of the preconception space. Mm-hmm. So she then recommended an OBGYN who mm-hmm. I went to and loved. But mm-hmm. uh, she, this, this genetic counselor, still remember her name, Ursula, she sat there with me. She explained all these tests. She agreed that it was a good idea to get them. She told me which private lab to go to to get my blood drawn. And then she helped send them off to uh, Baylor College of Medicine at the so, time. So my blood had to go from North Carolina to Houston, Texas. And this is before tested. you're even pregnant with your next yes, pregnancy. Yeah. Correct. So I think you bring up a wonderful point there that is there are additional partners in the health space besides a pediatrician or a family doc or even an OBGYN who might be of great support if you've got concerns about understanding prenatal testing. And that is a genetic counselor typically who, as you detail in the book so nicely, are designed not to lend opinion or coerce or push you a direction. They're really designed and trained to help families say, okay, this is the tests that are out there. Let's look about what you know about your family tree and your family history. And let's think strategically about how you want to understand your risks and then what is offered for you at this time. Yes. I, I, I personally feel in my own personal experience and in a more global sense, I feel that genetic counselors are really invaluable. And um, 
what's unfortunate is that they are often not paid for by I insurance companies. I was just going to say that, yeah. Did and you pay out of pocket for your experience? I did. Yeah. I did. It was worth it. Yeah, yeah. And I bet <laughs> it, it was fun. Not everybody, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think it's fun, right? But it might, to that kind of who you are and how you present to the world, yeah. it might actually allow you to have some peace of just kind of going, you know, life is uncertain every day. And pregnancy is a time of, and as you even open the book, I think the very first couple sentences of the book, you, you detail out pregnancy is a time of just grand uncertainty. And, you know, I think what's so interesting about the gene machine and the timing is that, you know, we are still the generation of moms. We're in our 40s, right? We're in the generation of moms where we had the beginning of some of this testing. We had ultrasound guidance so we could see what our baby looked like. And that 12 month or that, excuse me, that 12 week nuchal was magic for me because all of a sudden because you couldn't feel kicks yet but all of a sudden there was this person and I could see him moving around I was yeah. like oh my good grief right so the the kind of beautiful knowledge whereas our moms got pregnant mm-hmm. maybe had a home pregnancy yes, most of them didn't yeah um, went to the OB followed blood pressures and some urines and then I'll pop the baby yeah. I mean it was like that was it yes. yes and so I think what I what I love about your investigation in this book and the narrative of all the families you bring in and all the scientists you bring in is just what's at play in this time of flexion where we're in this time where, you know, it used to cost over a million bucks to sequence a genome. We're down in just the low thousands of dollars. You can go tomorrow and sequence your genome. And we don't even know what those results mean right. a lot of the time. Right, Yes. Yes. Like we've talked about before, we are very much in a period of time where our technological abilities and the science are vastly outpacing our knowledge and our understanding of what all these test results mean. So it's amazing that we have these tests, and yet a lot of the time people and their physicians are left in the dark about what exactly these test results mean. Yeah, and I translate that to mean, you know, someone could tell me as a pediatrician, oh, there's a um, a, a, deletion, a short arm deletion on blah, 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 chromosome number, blah, blah, blah. And I'd go look it up. And if I couldn't find very much, I'd say, well, I don't I don't know what that means. Yeah. So now we know that there's changes in the genome and in the DNA, potentially in a baby, but we don't have all the implications. And right. that 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 space, right, is potentially just more anxiety-provoking mm-hmm. than it is necessarily helpful. Yeah, I, I tell the story in the book of this one um, amazing family, it's the cutest little boy ever, <laughs> and I went over to their house. Um, a doctor um, at Columbia was their physician, and the mom um, was is an attorney in Brooklyn, and she um, she had what's called a chromosomal microarray, and the test came back um, showing that her baby had a deletion of several genes, and she was freaking out and went to the doctor, and the doctor said, I can't promise you that this will be, I can't give you 100% certainty that this will be okay. I can give you 80%. (laughs) And she said, we'll take it. (laughs) So she and her husband before had decided that if there was anything wrong, um, you also have to keep in mind geographically, uh, genetic testing really varies by where you are in this country. And this woman's in New York City. People there are high anxiety, and they have a lot of access to a lot of very expensive, very sophisticated tests. So she mm-hmm. availed herself of every possible thing she could avail herself of. Mm-hmm. And then when she and she they had decided that they were they were going to end a pregnancy if there if a problem was revealed. And then when this this these gene deletions were revealed, but her doctor said, well, we don't really know what it means. They decided to take 
um, to take the chance. And then to make it even more interesting, the parents were tested, which is often what happens in these cases, to yeah, find out if, right. the, um, if the genetic if anomalies have been inherited. And it was inherited from the mom. So here's mm. this mom who's a very high-functioning um, attorney city of New York, and she has the same deletion as her baby, and she's doing totally fine. So that also gave her more confidence. And then when I met this kid, I mean, he's totally normal. He's playing peekaboo with me, dropping his, you know, silverware over the high chair tray. I pick it up. He'd drop it, drop it again, giggling. <laughs> um, and his dad was home when I went to go visit. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of, and to think we almost... Hmm aborted him or mm. to think we almost decided not to have him. I can't remember if he actually used the word abortion. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that brings up, you know, a couple things about the anguish of what can come from getting some genetic testing results that are not perfect yeah. and that don't show brilliant potential future. That feels bad. I love, I'm going to read one, one, or you could read, but I'm going to just detail one of the favorite quotes of actually one of the professors when I studied bioethics at Penn, you included in the book, Dr. Art Kaplan. And I love this segment where you say, um, I mean, because you're talking about this, like now they get this microchromosomal array, then parents get tested, then it's determined where it came from. Yeah. And then there's this, this onus, right, on mm -hmm. what did I pass on, yes. who am I, and what comes. And right. I love this where, she, where, Dr., where Bonnie says, um, on page 53 in my copy, it says, as the bioethicist Art Kaplan has noted, genetic information is, quote, exquisitely sensitive. Worrisome genetic test results can make people feel that, quote, they harmed their children or that they themselves are flawed. Most people don't feel that way if their kidneys start working inefficiently. They don't say, I'm a flawed human being, but they feel that way about their genes. And I think I just thought that was so important to share because it's, this is high stakes investigation when we're doing prenatal testing. It isn't um, whatever's offered, give it to me, mm -hmm. because what might come back may be upsetting and non-relevant, yeah. may be upsetting and highly relevant, mm -hmm. or, you know, and may direct you to have doubt, confusion, hopes, dreams, or even a, a, a tendency to worry about your child, potentially for the rest of their life in a different way. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, and I, so I think that's what I like about your book, too, is I think you, you come about it agnostically where you kind of lay out these different cases and stories for the exploration based on um, family history and based on testing that's available that is different from center to center from OB to OB. You know, um, the um, our, one of my my colleagues, Stacy, who's sitting in the room with us recording, <laughs> um, was even kind of brought up. She's pregnant, and we've been talking a little bit about what it feels like to be pregnant, and and how I think you know there are different philosophies from person to person, and then there are different philosophies in us from pregnancy to pregnancy. Yeah, and it's okay. I, I just want to like endorse that in parents to say how you feel about testing in one pregnancy might be different than how you feel about it in another, and that's normal. Yes, you don't it's have completely to, normal yeah, depending may, upon where you are, yeah. how many kids you. Have have, what your experience has been with the birth of those children and the development of those children. Right. And I think the most important thing is to just always be clear that you know what kind of testing you're doing, if you're doing any, and why you want to do it in the first place, yeah. what you hope to get out of that. And of course, your OB, and maybe even a genetic counselor, if you opt in to do that, can guide you on that. But let's go through a little bit about what you learned from writing the book. So um, what are some of the genetic technologies shaping the experience of parenting now? Just at high level, describe those for us. So one of the most interesting um, 
One of the most interesting things going on right now is in the field of carrier screening. So carrier screening is uh, testing, blood tests that you do. You can, in an ideal world, you would do it even before you're pregnant. Um, because then if you find out something that you and your partner are both carriers for a certain disease, there are various genetic technologies that you could potentially take advantage of if that's something you choose to do. Yeah, and Bonnie goes through that in the book. I mean, it's fascinating to think. So you find out, you know, maybe before doing IVF that you want, that you're a carrier for something like what you detail in the book very d deliberately, the BRCA1 and 2. So breast cancer tendencies of, you know, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene actually discovered by a researcher here in Seattle area. And that if you know you've got that, you're at higher risk often for breast cancers and often ovarian cancers. And that you can, if you know you've got that, that, that you know, you detail the story of a mom who goes forward and chooses an embryo after making sure that that embryo doesn't carry the risk. Right, right. That's incredibly controversial, as you might imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that particular technology is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. It's been around for a couple of decades, but it's always been used, and it was actually developed um, to help parents who have a fatal genetic disease that runs in their family. So something like Tay-Sachs is kind of a, a poster child for using this technology. It's a really terrible disease. The baby is born normally. By around six months, deterioration starts, and it's it's highly unusual to even make it to kindergarten. So with something like that, if that lies in your child's future, most parents who I have surveyed say we would totally use technology to avoid having an affected child. But with something like breast cancer, it becomes decidedly more complicated. So mm -hmm. having knowing that you have a breast cancer mutation Oh, it, it only indicates greater risk, risk. doesn't yeah, yeah. it? It's not like yeah. if you have, if you and your partner, um, if, if you find out that the baby has Tay-Sachs, the baby has Tay-Sachs. There is nothing that that train has left the station. There is nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. But but with a BRCA mutation, it just means that you're at greater risk, and we're talking lifetime risk. So it means that you you are significantly more likely to develop breast cancer than the average um, woman or man in the US or anywhere in the world for that matter. So do you, with something just being a possibility and the fact that there are all sorts of ways to do increased surveillance um, or if you actually are diagnosed, there are, there are treatments, um, do you still want to use this technology to select an embryo that doesn't have this genetic risk. Yeah, and that's where this is so muddy, right, in some ways. And it's it's mixed with, um, you know, there, there's kind of religion and, again, spirit and philosophy and then partnership of how do you feel versus how does your partner feel. And um, we know, you know, there was a study that was published in the last year or two in pediatrics even looking at the different experience of girls being raised by moms who have BRCA1 and 2. So we know that kind of knowledge changes the experience of parenthood at baseline. Right. And then this muddy waters of do we even self-select out of that and how people feel about that is exceedingly personal. And just, I think as a, as a pediatrician and kind of an advocate for families, it's just saying, it's okay whoever you are, yeah. right? And it's just finding the right people to get you, you know, hopefully agnostic information so you can make the best decision you can right, in the right. time that you're yes. making the decision. And that's that. And then we and then we kind of move forward. So in addition to, you know, carrier screening, what are some of the other tests that you feel all moms should really know about? Well, I, well, I, want, I did want to add one thing about carrier screening. So one 
uh, what is so amazing about carrier screening today is that it is not it is you're able to screen for more than 100 diseases. Mm -hmm. So you can cast this really wide net as opposed to how it used to be where there uh, there's currently a recommendation that of just a very few number of diseases be universally screened for. And what's interesting about this um, casting this wide net, the reason that this has come about is because people, you know, the United States is known as a melting pot. And it's really true. Um, black people are marrying Hispanics and your grandmother is from Italy and your great grandfather came from Poland. And who knows mm -hmm. where what your family history is anymore, mm -hmm. your, your ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these genetic tests are recommended based, based on ethnicity, but um, a, a, several companies that are, um, that are promoting these expanded carrier screens are saying, well, you know what? Ethnicity is really not a great way to approach this anymore because we are such a melting pot. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense that everyone would cast a wide net and you would try to, um, just gives you more knowledge earlier in the process. And then my personal feeling is that it empowers you as a parent to be able to make the choices that feel right for you. And do, it brings up a couple of things. I mean, I think as a, as a, being in a family where, you know, we have a, you know, something runs in my family that would typically not come from my ethnicity. So, um, you know, I can't say this loudly enough that um, if you're interested in knowing these risks, don't rely on just kind of where your families may have immigrated from, right. if that makes sense. Because yes. it's, it's, of course, not 100 penetrant that way. Tell me a little bit about what you learned in how women are advertised or marketed for this kinds of tests. So is it that these tests can really only be done and drawn when a physician orders them? Or are these companies who are doing surveillance or carrier testing, are they going direct to consumers and saying, hey, for $1,000, we'll do this carrier testing at the right time for you so that you're ready to go? If and or covered by insurance or not, I mean, what what do you what do you know about that? Yeah, there's still very much a bias toward physician ordered tests, and I have to say that I think that that is, I think that's the right way to go. Um, so there are all sorts of companies that market directly to consumers, but when you if you just go and do this on your own you may or may not have access to genetic counselors to explain mm -hmm. to you the significance you may get information and incorrectly perceive it as really alarming or brush it off when it actually is important and so the idea of having it ordered by a physician is not necessarily to enrich that physician and his or her office yeah. but to um, be able to ground you in um, in this place that has access to all sorts of resources and information yeah and again just I think I think that's I agree with you I mean I but I do I do imagine in the next few decades this will move so fast and there will be options that will go directly to the public and as we take more and more control of our own data um, I think we're going to be afforded a lot more options and you know, I think it will behoove us, you know, those of us in medicine like me and, and those of you who are investigating these kinds of ideas to keep just reminding people that you, you kind of this is exquisitely sensitive information uh, kind of about self of how we evaluate who we are biologically. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be, you know, exceedingly meaningful and being in the comfort of people who can help you understand it yeah. seems to make a lot of sense. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I think. 
you know, there are a couple, I was just thinking about, you know, the kind of um, designer baby that you bring up, uh, you know, and I love the quote from one of the professors, I think at Duke, who was saying that their students will come up to them and say, like, I think I want to write a paper about a designer baby. God, please don't. Please don't, yeah. So talk, what does that mean? Help parents understand what a designer baby means and, like, the idea that maybe you could decide you really wanted a girl. Yeah. Going for a girl. And and what what are the laws around that? And, And what should families know? So designer baby is such a fraught and loaded term. It can really mean anything you want it to mean. In fact, I did some research when I was writing this book to find out when it was first used. And designer baby, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was like used by Calvin Klein (laughs) in relation to to a layout. (laughs) But anyway, designer baby has come to um, to have very very different meaning. And... um, but people I, are, of course, really. So, just to be clear, I mean, people are very scared about the concept of designer babies, yes. of you know, designing and engineering for a certain intelligence, a certain appearance, a certain yes. gender, right? I, mean, I that's wouldn't say gets... people are very scared. I would say some people are very oh, scared. Some maybe people I am. Some... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wendy, see, you are very I might scared. Be. Yeah, I think I might be. <laughs> I think some people are very excited. So mm-hmm. it depends. Like, like I was saying, it, it really depends how you just define designer baby. So is a designer baby one whose gender you select? Because that's being done all the time, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, you really can't do that if you're conceiving naturally. <laughs> Although, I have a very strong memory in my head of my friend Marta, a physician, <laughs> handing me this book yeah. <laughs> when I was trying to get pregnant. And she, you know, she was the friend who had the baby like, first. Put your like this yes, direction. And yes. <laughs> have sex in this position. Yeah. Do this. If you want a boy, do that. I swear. Yeah, sure, sure, oh, sure. Right. I, yeah. So, isn't that a designer baby? You are trying to design <laughs> what gender baby yeah, you yeah, get. Yeah. And that's so, exactly. Very important to some people. I mean, yeah, so question. you can yeah. you can do that. Yep. Um, you know, designer baby. When people talk about, oh, that sounds scary, and like the movie Gattaca, which yeah. I think is now twenty years old uh, this year, oh. um, people are talking about engineering an embryo to um, play basketball like Michael Jordan, uh, cello like Yo Yo Ma. God knows what else, but just to be this amazing superhuman, um, be gorgeous, uh, uh, you know, just super personable, like kind of the perfect baby. Uh Um, So, um, you know, just yes. They would have to have the perfect parents, which let me tell you, I don't think that exists. I would just like to interject here. No, well, the funny the thing baby, is. You would need the perfect family. And in the that's book, not out there. Yes. Yeah. In the book, some people say to me, you know what? If you want to have a kid who's really good at basketball, Either you need to be really good at basketball or your partner needs to be really good yeah, at basketball. Exactly. That is the best way that, we currently know yeah, sit on to pass on those all genes. night long. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're going to play and yes. practice and nurture. Yes. Skill. And then there's a whole 10,000 hour role yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. Malcolm yeah. Gladwell yeah. explains, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Nature which, you know, versus nurture. Which, in a different podcast where I talk about sports specialization, we I go against, right? Yeah. But that's not always true. Yeah. And, and data really supports in kids, for example, you're not going to be an NBA athlete just because of the 10,000 rule. And in fact, overuse injuries and stress and burnout. It's in the way yeah. of some kids overtraining and single sport specialization. So, so just to be clear, this is like a PSA amid a podcast. <laughs> Don't think that's it. Don't you on the basketball court for ten thousand hours? A day. hours. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take so that design- home to my soccer plane. Yeah, you do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so designer baby wise, so so people can determine gender now. They yes. can get carrier testing and select potentially to choose an embryo to be implanted that doesn't have a propensity or a risk, an elevated risk, for example, for some diseases or carrier status. Yes, for some diseases. and so that. Is so you could theoretically say that is a designer baby, mm-hmm. but as I point out in the book, 
what you are doing there is you are not creating you are taking away yes. so it's you know it's an it, it's a yes, difference but some it's designers quite... like don't even want their label out right yeah. i mean like let me pray let's <laughs> it's talk about label. clothes let's talk about michael kors or something no but i mean right i mean i i think des- design doesn't mean enhancement per se right, right? it means it can mean refinement yes right? yes and Which so is, that's what it means yeah. in the case of pre-implantation genetic technology yeah. so what people are worried about is trying to create um trying to select genes that code for intelligence, for athleticism. And the truth of the matter is we don't know that Uh information. I'm not saying we will never know it, but there is not one gene that codes for intelligence. It is there. I mean, this is where we talk about um, the interplay of genes and environment, which comes into play in so many things, Mm -hmm. not just in intelligence. Right. Yeah. There's a book on kind of nurture versus nature, the tension of and the amplification of biology plus environment. Genes can be destiny in some sorts of situations like with Huntington's disease, yeah, for example. Yeah. But in most cases, genes are not destiny. They are kind of, um, they're part of the picture, but they are not the entire picture. So, um, you know, just this week, two federal... Um, can I say something? Can I interrupt yeah. you? I want you to get back. I just want to say something that I think can bring that home. Of, I, I love your quote about genes aren't destiny. And I think, I think pediatricians constantly feel this way at a time of risk or challenge. But one example that I think proves that in a just route way, way is your kid comes home and gets a stomach. I mean, this happened to me in clinic this week. Your kid comes home and gets a stomach flu. Your first kid gets stomach flu and barfs like 32 times, can't keep anything down. You have to go to the doctor and then has diarrhea for 14 days. Your other kid pukes two times, has one loose stool and goes back to school two days later. Same virus, yeah. maybe even really close, in most similar genes, and a totally different totally kind of different phenotype experience. or experience, yes. right? And so, and I think that happens in front of our lives all the time. So it can help us remember when these, when the news even feels devastating of really using someone like a genetic counselor or, or an, right. a, a, someone who's very inclined to help you understand the variance of genetic expression right. is going right. to be really important. That's an excellent point. Um, Back to what Thank I was you, saying. Thank you. <laughs> Back yeah. to what I was saying. Yeah. Um, so this week, two science panels um, made a really surprising. Um, I wouldn't call it an endorsement, but they said human gene editing is okay. We in embryos, it's okay to do that. It, with I mean, there are a whole list of caveats, including if there's no other alternative. You're allowed to do it if you're trying to um, to eliminate a severe disease or severe disability. Um, there are a million precautions that need to be taken. But this panel, um, which last year and in years past said, we cannot tinker with mm-hmm. embryos. They are now, I think, to, to my way of thinking, they're seeing the light. This is going to happen. China is already doing this. Mm-hmm. They, This is going to happen. So rather than saying, no, we can't do it, they're saying, yes, it is acceptable. And they're trying to put these very tight parameters around the situations in which it is acceptable. So of course, people are concerned about, OK, well, if we do it for to, um, to eliminate a severe fatal disease, well, then what's going to stop us from doing it to create, uh, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 
super smart baby. Well, what's going to stop us is what I already said. We don't know how to create a super smart baby yet, Mm -hmm. um, if we ever will. So um, I think it's important to not get overly freaked out about what this all means. I think what it simply means is some very smart scientists um, are saying this is this is our this is not the future anymore. This is the present in which we're living, and let's acknowledge that this is going on and can go on, and let's try and be smart about how we approach it. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I, I think one of the things I like about this podcast is you can hear how Bonnie thinks and how she stems together ideas around where we're going and where we've come from and where we find ourselves right now. So in closure, in some ways, I'd love for you to help just kind of since our heads can spin on where we are and kind of our heads can spin on even what to do. Let's just end with some, you know, here you are, you're thinking about having a baby and or you're pregnant right now. Bonnie, what can a an expecting parent or even a grandma who has a, a really strong opinions, most likely, <laughs> what can they say to their family doc or OB or midwife mm-hmm. today that would help them understand what's available? Since your book points out clearly that women of so lower socioeconomic status don't tend to have as much options or exposure or offerings even mm-hmm. of prenatal and, and genetic testing during right. their pregnancies. Right. So what can we guide parents to go forward to their caregivers before conception or during a pregnancy? What should they ask? So I think the most important thing is to be aware that all this information is really confusing because there is so much of it. You need a PhD to make sense (laughs) of all these tests. And these tests are changing month by month. Um, They are expanding. They're improving. They're adding more diseases. And they have different names from one clinic to another. So, you know, (laughs) Stacey, who's sitting here, was saying what her clinic calls one test and her friend who's pregnant, other clinic calls it something else. So it's even hard to talk to your friends Different companies brand them with different names so you don't even know what you're talking about. So I think the most important thing is to go and to ask your OB, can you sit and talk with me about what these tests mean, what they can reveal? And if you can't, can you refer me to a genetic counselor who has the time to take to educate me? I think the worst thing that someone can do is to say, ooh, technology, yeah, here's the latest iPhone. Let's just, I just need to update just because it's there. I need to, you know, get the latest and greatest in tech. Well, the latest and greatest in tech may actually not be right for you, depending on who you are as a person. So I think it's really important to know, are you a person? And this is a question that comes up in the book over and over. This is sort of the theme. Do you find information, more information empowering, or do you find it anxiety-inducing? And if if and when you know that about yourself, you can then go to your doctor and say, hey, this is the kind of person I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, can you please advise me which tests might be right for me. Yeah, and just to call out, too, in the book, I mean, Bonnie does a really nice job. Um, there's a there's a chapter that she calls the Scarlet Letter A, correct? Is that what you call yeah. it? The Scarlet Letter A, which is really all about abortion and the the complicating the complicating aspects of it doesn't matter if you're pro life or pro choice the complicated aspects of what is what are these tests for at the time that they're given if you're interested in aborting a, a, a fetus or an expected baby that does or doesn't have a chromosomal abnormality or is a carrier for something and 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 what are you going to do with that and right. so and I think 
you know, no, you know, we were talking before. I mean, you're the one who said this, but no doctor, no, I can't imagine an OB saying to you, so do you want to get these genetic screens to decide if you're going to have an abortion? <laughs> right. It's just not the way it's ever no, going to be presented. No, but at the same like time, <laughs> when you're really looking for lethal conditions, there are some families, and you d- describe them in stories in the book, that will find out about a life shortening or a chronic disease or a life-ending illness that their child will develop, and they will choose not to terminate or they'll have a selective reduction, meaning they might have twins and they'll um, terminate one of the pregnancies. And I, I loved the quote in the book because I thought it was just so honest of this mom saying, oh, did I just get rid of the baby who was going to have a terrible life or did I just kill my baby? Yeah. Right. And that these horribly fraught, overwhelming, I mean, huge life experiences. Right. So, so I think to the point of just wrapping it up for what Bonnie's book can guide us to is there is a whole host of tests. They come somewhere before you get pregnant. Soon after you get pregnant, around 9 to 11 weeks, then again at 15 to 18 weeks, then again even in the second trimester when you're even talking about more invasive testing like amniocentesis. And it's making sure that you're continuing to ask the questions till you feel really good about what you're doing and knowing that what you choose in your first pregnancy might be different than the second and might be really different than what your sister or brother chooses. And that's okay. Exactly. Well said. Bonnie's book is great. It's compelling. She's like a really good writer. And when you're a writer like me, you kind of read and you're like, oh, if only I could write like that. Like she just goes from one story to another with like data and science and great information. <laughs> the notes section is like a mini book at the end. So like here, everything here. is. Well, it is. It's like, I don't know how many pages it is. Oh my God. But it's like everything so, is sourced, slog. but not in an annoying way. It's not like reading a science book or it's not like reading a science report from high school where there's like footnotes at the bottom of the page. There's nothing annoying like that. But you can look up anything because she cites it all and backs it up. So this is a science-based narrative that kind of, I would say, is a quilt of stories of different families and their journeys with kind of propensity, family history, religion, and philosophy at a time when, to your point, genetics and technology is really outpacing our understanding of how to advise. So take a look at um, The Gene Machine, how genetic technologies are changing the way we have kids and the kid we have, in the kids we have, from author and Seattleite Bonnie Rockman. Thanks, Bonnie. Such a pleasure with you, Sue. Thank you. <laughs> the reality is, and this is so clear today, parenting is a high stakes job, but the good news is you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from. 